Good morning. Really, really good to be with you. Greetings from the bluegrass region of central Kentucky. So glad to be with you this morning. Uh, Luke and I did have the privilege of studying together. Uh, even though I was teaching, I was also a doctoral student at the same time that Luke was. And that was a long journey, really. Um, and not always glorious. I remember just a day or two before the graduation ceremony on which I would receive my, my doctoral degree, our, our boys, our, we have four and they were, they were younger, uh, one of them said to my wife Christina, so, so what is it we're doing again tomorrow? And, and she said, we're going to go see your dad graduate. He's going to become a doctor. And the one son said, you mean like he's going to wear a white coat and have that thing around his neck? She said, no, not exactly, not that kind of doctor. And he said, oh, so he's not going to be a useful doctor. <laughs> yeah. Can I get a witness? <clears throat> that was a long journey. And that journey really, I think, in some ways capstoned a series of events that began at an early age for me when I first encountered the Bible. <clears throat> and I'll, I will tell you that from my perspective, I've had four major encounters with the Bible. The first one when I was, was when I was about 12 and was really bored one summer. Uh, we're actually from Indiana originally. We moved to Kentucky for seminary. But I grew up on gravel roads and in cornfields and no friends except, you know, my brother to play with. So, having read every book that I had that summer, I picked up the family Bible that was on the coffee room table as my last resort, and I began reading through it. And I found it intriguing as I read about creation and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, and then Noah and the flood and the ark and the rainbow. <clears throat> and then I got to chapter 10 of Genesis, which is the table of nations. All these names and places and people groups and, and, and I took that big Bible and I closed it and I put it back on the coffee table in the living room because honestly the book disappointed me. It, it wasn't what I expected. <clears throat> it didn't meet my expectations and it remained there for several years. And then it was at about age 16 after ha having come to a saving knowledge and profession of Jesus that I began to reflect on my life. I was in high school at that point. Do we have any high schoolers here today? Anybody in high school? Anybody ever been in high school? <laughs> there you go. And it was in biology class that I began to think about my future and my destiny, my eternal destiny, and I began to be concerned about where I would spend eternity. I was, I was fearful for my salvation. And I shared that with a grown-up whom I trusted, and he said, Brad, if you're fearful for your, your, your salvation, you should read the book of Revelation, because it'll scare any evil out of you. I said, okay. So I went into the only room in, I, in our house where I could be assured of absolute privacy. The only room that I was allowed to lock the door. And I picked up a copy of the Good News Bible paperback with the little stick figures, you know, the kind of Bible you find at a funeral home. 
and I read the book of Revelation, and it was fascinating. And I got to the end, and I thought, I have no idea what I just read. I saw, and I think it was chapter 3, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is in the Bible. The city of brotherly love, the city of Rocky Balboa, for heaven's sake. Not good. Well, I went on from there, and it was years later that I found myself a youth pastor at a big church in Indianapolis. I had no biblical basis. I had no business in that job. And at about age 27, I encountered a Bible study that was called, and still is, Disciple. Disciple Bible study. It was a 34-week long survey of the entire Bible, and you, you read through the Bible in a, in, a, in a community, a small group. And as I read through the Bible in that community, with that group, for the first time in my life, I felt like I saw the big picture of the Bible. This is the third major encounter I had with the Word. Up to that point, I felt like every time I went to a Bible uh, uh, study or a Sunday school lesson, there would be a verse or two that we'd talk about, and it was like pressing my nose against a wall that had a giant mural on it. And somebody saying, describe what you see. And I said, I see green. You know, that's all I can see. But Disciple Bible Study helped me step back away and see the big picture of the Bible. And I liked that picture. I fell in love with the story that the Bible tells, and I saw myself a part of that story between God's creation and God's eventual new creation. I'm in that story. Well, it was a few years later, in my mid-30s, that I began seminary study at, at Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, and I happened to take a course with Dr. David Bauer, which affectionately has come to be known as the Bauer Hour of Power. David Bauer is a professor of what is called inductive Bible study, and it's, it's rigorous, is it not? It, it is intense. Um, students spend hours and hours and hours on assignments. He doesn't assign assignments based on the number of pages. He says, set a number of hours and then stop. And of course, inductive Bible study is abbreviated IBS. The ongoing joke at the seminary about IBS is first you take it, then you get it. It's just, it's just, you can really go wide open with this thing. And I'll tell you that that course with David Bauer really changed me in the way I approach not only Scripture, but the way I approach all of life. Let me share a passage with you from Luke chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles with you, I encourage you to take them out. And follow along with me. I'm in the English Standard Version here. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were 
talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk along? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our, com of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. So they drew new to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this story is about a journey. And in some ways, I, I connect with it because my life has been a journey, a journey marked by mileposts largely centering on my encounters with the Word of God. Now, in my Bible, and I don't know how your Bible works, but uh, I bring this one when I travel because it's a little more compact and it's easy to put in a backpack, but it's got a little heading up here that says, on the road to Emmaus. Do any of your Bibles have a little heading right there to that effect? Do you guys have it? Yeah, that's unfortunate. You know, Luke didn't write that. The publishers and the translator of this version of the Bible wrote that. This really isn't about the road to Emmaus. It's about people <clears throat> and circumstances. The road to Emmaus just happens to be the context for what happens. Luke is keenly interested 
and establishing context, context, where, when, who, what. And he begins, in fact, by establishing context in verse 13 when he says, that very day. That's a context clue with regard to time, isn't it? Well, what day is it? Well, read up the page just a little bit. It's the day that Jesus is discovered by the women to not be in the tomb. That's the day. And then we get a context clue with regard to where. Where does this happen? It happens somewhere between Jerusalem and the village of Emmaus, about seven miles distance. Probably, I'm guessing, about the same distance as it would be between here and the south end of DFW Airport. You could walk it if you move quickly, straight line a couple hours. This is, this is where it happens. So Luke establishes the context, and then in verse 15 he says that Jesus draws near to the two disciples as they're traveling. So what's happening, if you can kind of picture this, is the two guys are, are walking along, and Jesus is coming up from behind. They probably don't hear, certainly don't see him. And he's moving a little quicker. And he catches up with them. And then the Bible says this. And I'm going to tell you, I struggle with this. This is verse, verses 16 and 17. And there are things in the Bible I struggle with. I'm, I'm okay with that. But i got to be honest. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It didn't say that they didn't recognize him. It says their eyes were kept. So here's a question. Who's doing the keeping? Who is making it so that their eyes don't recognize him? And then it says something about their their countenance, their attitude, their emotions. What does it say? Were they happy? I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you a picture of what they felt like, and I want somebody to tell me what word is the right word to describe their attitude. Can we put the first slide up? So we get our context clues, time and place, We get the approach of Jesus and we get this interesting thing where the disciples don't recognize Jesus himself. They they were kept from that. And it produced in them a feeling of, let's say it together, sadness. How do you know sadness? Because that's sadness right there, isn't it? This is how they feel. That's probably why they were walking so slow. Have you ever been sad and walked slowly? kind of without purpose, without excitement, without life. I want to skip down the page for a little bit because I don't like being sad. Now, I like this character, but I don't like being sad. I want happy. If I come to a movie, I want to be happy. If I'm paying $13 for a ticket or whatever it is these days, I don't want to be sad. I want to smile. Let's look for the smile in this passage. Verse 
31, the first part of it, it says this, and their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. Thank God. But wait, there's more. And then something else I, I struggle with here. Jesus vanishes. As soon as they recognize him, he disappears. How many of you know the movie Nanny McPhee? Who knows Nanny McPhee? All right, so it's, it's sort of a, um, what's the Julie Andrews movie where she goes and as the, the, the nanny? Mary Poppins, thank you. It's sort of like Mary Poppins, isn't it? So she comes in mysteriously. She's taking care of the kids. The kids don't want her there. She says, when you don't need me, that's when I will come. Or when you don't want me. Yeah, that's it. When you don't want me, that's when I will come. And then at the end, of course, the kids turn around and they're great kids and they love her. And, and she says, well, I've got to leave. And they say, but we don't want you to leave. And she says, it's when you want me, but don't need me, that I must go. And I sort of have that sense about this passage. Not exactly, but it sort of calls it to my mind. Jesus disappears. And then we get something really curious. Oh, and let me say this too. Uh, when their eyes are opened and right before Jesus vanishes, their hearts are on fire. They're excited. They took that frown and they turned it upside down, right? Something has changed. And then Luke gives us this final contextual clue. He says, not that same day, but now he says, that same hour. Now all of a sudden he's getting very precise and instead of going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we see those disciples are now on their way from Emmaus back to Jerusalem in an extraordinary turn of events. This whole thing has come completely full circle. Now, what this does is it leaves a big chunk of real estate in the Bible that I've skipped over. And it's essentially the space between verse 17 and 31. And it's in this space that something happens that turns that frown upside down. What is it? What happens? Two things. Number one. Yes, ma'am. Yes, e or Avery. What was it? She feels sad. That's exactly right. She feels sad. What makes her not feel so sad? How does sadness, in this, if we can put her into this story, how does she become happy? Two things. That's a good question. You ask all the questions you want. Number one, Jesus interpreted the word to them. Did you catch that? The Greek word underlying this is diermenuo. I paid $30,000 for this education. You bet I'm going to use that. <laughs> diermenuo. You know what it means? It means to interpret, to explain. It gives us an English word. What is it, Luke? Hermeneutics? Exactly right. Hermeneutics. He didn't know where I was going with that. That's not fair. Sorry about that. Hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? It's the principle of interpretation. It's just the science of understanding. 
So first of all, Jesus explains the Scriptures to them. He interprets it to them. And, and when He does, they more accurately know about Him. Agreed? Could the story end there? Could sadness find happiness with that alone? Well, apparently not. Because that's not what brings them to their final point. Something else has to happen for this to work. And you know what it is? They have to sit at table fellowship with Jesus. That's the second thing. Yeah, he takes the bread. Yeah, he, he breaks the bread. Yeah, he gives it to them. But none of that has any power until he blesses it. You want another Greek word? Of course you do. Eulageo. Eulageo gives us the English word eulogy, which is a word of blessing, a word of favor, a positive word about something. Jesus blesses that meal. He blesses the time and he blesses the people. So now we have an enterprise devoted to the development of the mind, the explanation of and interpretation of Scripture. But that's not enough. We also have the enlivening of the heart through community and fellowship and love. But that's not enough. Terry preached this sermon an hour ago when we were in that small group. He, he, he's already said this. I'm just confirming it. It's both of these things together that bring one to having one's heart on fire. But that's not really the end game, is it? I want my heart on fire. Do you want your heart on fire? Of, of course we do. We want to be excited. We want to be passionate. But more than that, I want what the disciples got. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Do you want some of that? I do. And that's the real point here. Prior to my study of inductive Bible study, I would probably key in on the hearts on fire, the hearts burning, because I'd want the experience. But I completely overlooked the, the power and the centrality of this little statement. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. I'm going to go ahead and ask them to put the second slide up, and you're going to see how this passage is laid out. And it's really an extraordinary structure that involves a reversal a going into one place, this dark season of the soul, and a coming out back into the light. And the turning points are twofold. Understanding Scripture and experiencing the power of a risen God. Both of these things must happen if we want to recognize Jesus. Because it's not just enough for us to know about Him we need to know Him. Amen? So I offer this to you as a way of encouraging you to pursue both. Loving Jesus with your mind and loving Him with your heart. But, but, but how? How? 
practically. Come on, come on, preacher. Give me some encouragement here. Don't leave me hanging. Let, let, let me try to do that. So I've shared probably a little more with you today than I needed to about me. But I'll share this as well. I'm a little bit of a geek, a little bit of a nerd when it comes to technology. And so even on my flight from, and I flew out of Cincinnati, uh, my flight from Cincinnati to Dallas yesterday, I'm pulling out my computer, or my, uh, I'm sorry, my phone, and I've got apps on there that I, I mess with during flight. And I think it's okay because I'm in airplane mode. But I've got this little program that helps me track airspeed. I can track airspeed, and I see 498 miles an hour. <laughs> That's impressive. I've got an app on there that helps me track altitude. I knew we were flying at 38,000 feet. That's a long way. And I've got a little positioning app that shows me where we are in the country. And when I zoom way out and I look at the whole trip from Cincinnati to DFW, it looks like the little dot's not moving. But if I zoom in, I can be, begin to see it is, in fact, moving slowly but surely. Maybe sometimes not as fast as I would hope but it is moving. I think that this journey to Dallas yesterday is so much like our journey into doctoral work. It seemed impossible. We never imagined that we would do it. We never imagined that we would finish it. But step by step, day by day, we continued toward the goal. Our journeys are in so many ways like this flight from Cincinnati to Dallas, but in other ways, important ways, it's different. The journey to Dallas has a final destination. You end and you achieve the goal. A journey in faith never ends. Just because I was awarded a doctoral degree doesn't mean that I've arrived. Au contraire, mon frère. The exact opposite is true. I realize I'm just really finding my highway speed. So much more to know, so much more to see when it comes to Jesus. I have not arrived yet, but I want you to know I started in seats like these. Now, Charles, where's Charles? I, Charles in the room? Oh, there he is, back there at the helm. Charles said something remarkable in our time together a while ago. He said, I promise you I will never go to this level. He just sealed his fate, didn't he, Luke? Because the Lord will take that and he'll use it. The Lord raises up people like us not to achieve final destinies on this earth or to live into final roles, not to get done so the oven timer goes ding, but to move us forward to drawing, to draw him, I'm sorry, to draw us into greater relationship with him. So I just say, let's just take the cars out of park. Let's put them into drive and let's just see where they go. Let's just get started. I have not arrived yet, but I am making excellent progress and I highly recommend it. And I invite you to join me on that road not so much to Emmaus and not to the south end of DFW, but the road to knowing Jesus. Amen.